0: Chapter 8 Arthur awoke feeling wonderful, absolutely fabulous, refreshed, overjoyed to be home, bouncing with energy, hardly disappointed at all to discover it was the middle of February. He almost danced to the fridge, found the three least hairy things in it, put them on a plate and watched them intently for two minutes. Since they made no attempt to move within that time, he called them breakfast and ate them. Between them, they killed a virulent space disease he'd picked up without knowing it in the Flagathon gas swamps a few days earlier, which otherwise would have killed off half the population of the Western Hemisphere, blinded the other half, and driven everyone else psychotic and sterile, so the Earth was lucky there. He felt strong. He felt healthy. He vigorously cleared away the junk mail with a spade, and then buried the cat. Just as he was finishing that, the phone went but he let it ring while he maintained a moment's respectful silence. Whoever it was would ring back if it was important. He kicked the mud off his shoes and went back inside. There had been a small number of significant letters in the piles of junk. Some documents from the council dated three years earlier relating to the proposed demolition of his house, and some other letters about the setting up of a public inquiry into the whole bypass scheme in the area. There was also an old letter from Greenpeace the Ecological Pressure Group, to which he occasionally made contributions, asking for help with their scheme to release dolphins and orcas from captivity, and some postcards from friends, vaguely complaining that he never got in touch these days. He collected these together and put them in a cardboard file which he marked, things to do. Since he was feeling so vigorous and dynamic that morning, he even added the word, urgent. He unpacked his towel and another few odd bits and pieces from the plastic bag he had acquired at the Port Braster mega-market. The slogan on the side was a clever and elaborate pun in lingua centauri, which was completely incomprehensible in any other language and therefore entirely pointless for a duty-free shop at a spaceport. The bag also had a hole in it, so he threw it away. He realised with a sudden twinge that something else must have dropped out in the small spacecraft that had brought him to Earth, kindly going out of its way to drop him right beside the A303. He had lost his battered and space-worn copy of the thing which had helped him find his way across the unbelievable wastes of space he had traversed. He had lost the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy. Well, he told himself, this time I really won't be needing it again. He had some calls to make. He had decided how to deal with the mass of contradictions his return journey precipitated, which was that he would simply brazen it out. He phoned the BBC and asked to be put through to his department head. Oh, hello, Arthur Dent here. Look, sorry I haven't been in for six months, but I've gone mad. Oh, not to worry. Thought it was probably something like that. Happens here all the time. How soon can we expect you? When do hedgehogs stop hibernating? Sometime in spring, I think. I'll be in shortly after that. Righty-o. He flipped through the yellow pages and made a short list of numbers to try. Oh, hello. Is that the Old Elms Hospital? Yes. I was just phoning to see if I could have a word with Fenella. Er, Fenella. Good Lord. (laughs) Silly me, I'll forget my own name next. Um, Fenella isn't this ridiculous. Patient of yours, dark-haired girl, came in last night. I'm afraid we don't have any patients called Fenella. Oh, don't you? I I meant Fiona, of course. We we just call her Fen- I'm sorry, goodbye. Click. Six conversations along these lines began to take their toll on his mood of vigorous, dynamic optimism, and he decided that before it deserted him entirely, he would take it down to the pub and parade it a little. He had had the perfect idea for explaining away every inexplicable weirdness about himself at a stroke, and he whistled to himself as he pushed open the door which had so daunted him last night. Arthur! He grinned cheerfully at the boggling eyes that stared at him from all corners of the pub and told them all what a wonderful time he'd had in Southern California. Chapter 9 He accepted another pint and took a pull at it. Of course I had my own personal alchemist too. You what? He was getting silly, and he knew it. Exuberance and Hall and Woodhouse Best Bitter was a mixture to be wary of, but one of the first effects it has is to stop you being wary of things, and the point at which Arthur should have stopped and explained no more was the point at which he started instead to get inventive. "'Oh, yes,' he insisted with a happy, glazed smile. "'It's why I've lost so much weight.' "'What?' said his audience. "'Oh, yes,' he said again. "'The Californians have rediscovered alchemy. Oh, yes.' He smiled again. Only, he said, it's in a much more useful form than that which in... He paused thoughtfully to let a little grammar assemble in his head. In which the ancients used to practise it, or at least, he added, failed to practise it. They couldn't get it to work. You know, Nostradamus and that lot couldn't cut it. "'Nostradamus?' said one of his audience. "'I don't think he was an alchemist,' said another. I thought, said a third, he was a seer. He became a seer, said Arthur to his audience, the component parts of which were beginning to bob and blur a little, because he was such a lousy alchemist, you should know that. He took another pull at his beer. It was something he had not tasted for eight years. He tasted it and tasted it. What has alchemy got to do, asked a bit of the audience, with losing weight? I'm glad you asked Nat said Arthur, very glad, and I will now tell you what the connection is between, he paused, between those two things, the things you mentioned, I'll tell you. He paused and manoeuvred his thoughts. It was like watching oil tankers doing three-point turns in the English Channel. They've discovered how to turn excess body fat into gold, he said, in a sudden blurt of coherence. You're kidding! ''Oh, yes,'' he said. ''No,'' he corrected himself. ''They have?'' He rounded on the doubting part of his audience, which was all of it, and so it took a little while to round on it completely. ''Have you been to California?'' he demanded. ''Do you know the sort of stuff they do there?'' Three members of his audience said they had, and that he was talking nonsense. ''You haven't seen anything,'' insisted Arthur. ''Oh, yes,'' he added, ''because someone was offering to buy another round.'' "'The evidence,' he said, pointing at himself and not missing by more than a couple of inches, "'is before your eyes. Fourteen hours in a trance,' he said, "'in a tank, in a trance. "'I was in a tank, I think,' he added after a thoughtful pause. "'I already said that.' "'He waited patiently while the next round was duly distributed.' He composed the next bit of his story in his mind, which was going to be something about the tank needing to be orientated along a line dropped perpendicularly from the pole star to a baseline drawn between Mars and Venus, and was about to start trying to say it when he decided to give it a miss. Long time, he said instead. In a tank. In a trance. He looked round severely at his audience to make sure it was all following attentively. He resumed. Where was I? He said. In a trance, said one. In a tank, said another. Oh, yes, said Arthur. Thank you. And slowly, he said, pressing onwards, slowly, 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 all your excess body fat turns to... He paused for effect. Subcoo. Subu. He paused for breath. Subcutaneous gold, which you can have surgically removed. Getting out of the tank is hell. What did you say? I was just clearing my throat. <laughs> I think you doubt me. I-, I was clearing my throat. She was clearing her throat, confirmed a significant part of the audience in a low rumble. ''Oh yes,'' said Arthur. ''All right. And you then split the proceeds,'' he paused again for a maths break. Fifty-fifty 50 -50 with the alchemist. (laughs) Make a lot of money!'' He looked swayingly around at his audience and could not help but be aware of an air of scepticism about their jumbled faces. He felt very affronted by this. ''How else,'' he demanded, ''could I afford to have my face dropped?'' Friendly arms began to help him home. Listen, he protested as the cold February breeze brushed his face. Looking lived in is all the rage in California at the moment. You've got to look as if you've seen the galaxy. Life, I mean. You've got to look as if you've seen life. That's what I got. A face drop. Give me eight years, I said. I hope being 30 doesn't come back into fashion or I've wasted a lot of money. He lapsed into silence for a while as the friendly arms continued to help him along the lane to his house. Got in yesterday, he mumbled. I'm very, very, very happy to be home or somewhere very like it. Jet lag, muttered one of his friends. Long trip from California. Really mucks you up for a couple of days. I don't think he's been there at all, muttered another. I wonder where he has been and what's happened to him. After a little sleep, Arthur got up and potted round the house a bit. He felt woozy and a little low, still disoriented by the journey. He wondered how he was going to find Fenny. He sat and looked at the fish bowl. He tapped it again, and despite being full of water and a small yellow babel fish which was gulping its way around rather dejectedly, it still chimed its deep and resonant chime as clearly and mesmerically as before. Someone is trying to thank me, he thought to himself. He wondered who, and for what. Chapter 10 At the third stroke, it will be one, thirty-two, and twenty seconds. Beep, beep, beep. Ford Prefect suppressed the little giggle of evil satisfaction, realised that he had no reason to suppress it, and laughed out loud. A wicked laugh. He switched the incoming signal through from the sub-ethernet to the ship's superb hi-fi system, and the odd, rather stilted sing-song voice spoke out with remarkable clarity round the cabin. At the third stroke, it will be one, thirty-two, and thirty seconds. Beep, beep, beep. He tweaked the volume up just a little, while keeping a careful eye on a rapidly changing table of figures on the ship's computer display. For the length of time he had in mind, the question of power consumption became significant. He didn't want a murder on his conscience. At the third stroke, it will be one, thirty-two, and forty seconds. Beep, beep, beep. He checked around the small ship. He walked down the short corridor. At the third stroke, he stuck his head into the small, functional, gleaming steel bathroom. It will be... It sounded fine in there. He looked into the tiny sleeping quarters. One, thirty-two. It sounded a bit muffled. There was a towel hanging over one of the speakers. He took down the towel. And fifty seconds. Fine. He checked out the packed cargo hold and wasn't at all satisfied with the sound. There was altogether too much crated junk in the way. He stepped back out and waited for the door to seal. He broke open a closed control panel and pushed the jettison button. He didn't know why he hadn't thought of that before. A whooshing rumbling noise died away quickly into silence. After a pause, a slight hiss could be heard again. It stopped. He waited for the green light to show and then opened the door again onto the now empty cargo hold. One thirty-three and fifty seconds. Very nice. Beep, beep, beep. He then went and had a last thorough examination of the emergency suspended animation chamber, which was where he particularly wanted it to be heard. At the third stroke it will be one thirty-four precisely. He shivered as he peered down through the heavily frosted covering at the dim bulk of the form within. One day, who knew when, it would wake, and when it did, it would know what time it was. Not exactly local time, true, but what the heck. He double-checked the computer display above the freezer bed, dimmed the lights, and checked it again. At the third stroke, it will be, he tiptoed out and resumed to the control cabin, One thirty-four and twenty seconds. The voice sounded as clear as if he was hearing it over a phone in London, which he wasn't, not by a long way. He gazed out into the inky night. The star the size of a brilliant biscuit crumb he could see in the distance was Zondestina, or as it was known on the world from which the rather stilted sing-song voice was being received, Pleiades Zeta. The bright orange curve that filled over half the visible area was the giant gas planet Sessifres Magna, where the Zaxissian battleships docked, and just rising over its horizon was a small, cool blue moon, Epon. At the third stroke, it will be... For twenty minutes he sat and watched as the gap between the ship and Epon closed, as the ship's computer teased and kneaded the numbers that would bring it into a loop around the little moon, close the loop and keep it there, orbiting in perpetual obscurity. One fifty-nine. His original plan had been to close down all external signalling and radiation from the ship, to render it as nearly invisible as possible unless you were actually looking at it, but then he'd had an idea he preferred. It would now emit one single continuous beam, pencil thin, broadcasting the incoming time signal to the planet of the signal's origin, which it would not reach for four hundred years, travelling at light speed, but where it would probably cause something of a stir when it did. Beep, 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 he sniggered. He didn't like to think of himself as the sort of person who giggled or sniggered, but he had to admit that he had been giggling and sniggering almost continuously for well over half an hour now. At the third stroke, The ship was now locked almost perfectly into its perpetual orbit round a little-known and never-visited moon. Almost perfect. One thing only remained. He ran again the computer simulation of the launching of the ship's little escaper buggy, balancing actions, reactions, tangential forces, all the mathematical poetry of motion, and saw that it was good. Before he left, he turned out the lights. As his tiny little cigar tube of an escape craft zipped out on the beginning of its three-day journey to the orbiting space station Port Sessafron, it rode for a few seconds a long, pencil-thin beam of radiation that was starting out on a longer journey still. At the third stroke, it will be two, thirteen, and fifty seconds. He giggled and sniggered. He would have laughed out loud, but he didn't have room. Beep. 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 Chapter 11 April Showers I hate especially. However non-committally Arthur grunted, the man seemed determined to talk to him. He wondered if he should get up and move to another table, but there didn't seem to be one free in the whole cafeteria. He stirred his coffee fiercely. Bloody April Showers. Hate, hate, hate. Arthur stared, frowning out of the window. A light, sunny spray of rain hung over the motorway. Two months he'd been back now. Slipping back into his old life had in fact been laughably easy. People had such extraordinary short memories, including him. Eight years of crazed wanderings round the galaxy now seemed to him not so much like a bad dream as like a film he had videotaped from the TV and now kept in the back of a cupboard without bothering to watch. One effect that still lingered, though, was his joy at being back. Now that the Earth's atmosphere had closed over his head for good, he thought, wrongly, everything within it gave him extraordinary pleasure. Looking at the silvery sparkle of the raindrops, he felt he had to protest. Well, I like them, he said suddenly. And for all the obvious reasons, they're light and refreshing. They sparkle and make you feel good. The man snorted derisively. (laughs) That's what they all say, he said, and glowered darkly from his corner seat. He was a lorry driver. Arthur knew this because his opening, unprovoked remark had been, I'm a lorry driver. I hate driving in the rain. Ironic, isn't it? Bloody ironic. If there was a sequitur hidden in this remark... Arthur had not been able to divine it and had merely given a little grunt, affable but not encouraging. But the man had not been deterred then and was not deterred now. They all say that about bloody April showers, he said, so bloody nice, so bloody refreshing, such charming bloody weather. He leaned forward, screwing his face up as if he was going to say something extraordinary about the government. What I want to know is this, he said. If it's going to be nice weather, why, he almost spat, can't it be nice without bloody raining? Arthur gave up. He decided to leave his coffee, which was too hot to drink quickly and too nasty to drink cold. Well, there you go, he said, and instead got up himself. Bye. He stopped off at the service station's shop, then walked back through the car park, making a point of enjoying the fine play of rain on his face. There was even, he noticed, a hint of a rainbow glistening over the Devon Hills. He enjoyed that too. He climbed into his battered but adored old black Golf GTI, squealed the tyres and headed out past the islands of petrol pumps and onto the slip road back towards the motorway. He was wrong in thinking that the atmosphere of the earth had closed finally and forever above his head. He was wrong to think that it would ever be possible to put behind him the tangled web of irresolutions into which his galactic travels had dragged him. He was wrong to think he could now forget the big, hard, oily, dirty, rainbow-hung Earth on which he lived was a microscopic dot on a microscopic dot, lost in the unimaginable infinity of the universe. He drove on, humming, being wrong about all these things. The reason he was wrong was standing by the slip road, under a small umbrella. His jaw sagged. He sprained his ankle against the brake pedal and skidded so hard he very nearly turned the car over. ''Fenny!'' he shouted. Having narrowly avoided hitting her with the actual car, he hit her instead with the car door as he leant across and flung it open at her. It caught her hand and knocked away her umbrella, which then bowled wildly away across the road. ''Shit!'' yelled Arthur as helpfully as he could, leapt out of his own door, narrowly avoided being run down by McKenna's all-weather haulage, and watched in horror as it ran down Fenny's umbrella instead. The lorry swept along the motorway and away. The umbrella lay like a recently swatted Daddy Longlegs, expiring sadly on the ground. Tiny gusts of wind made it twitch a little. He picked it up. Er, he said. There didn't seem to be a lot of point in offering the thing back to her. ''How did you know my name?'' she said. ''Er, well,'' he said. ''Look, I'll I'll get you another one.'' He looked at her and tailed off. She was tallish, with dark hair which fell in waves around a pale and serious face. Standing still, alone, she seemed almost sombre, like a statue to some important but unpopular virtue in a formal garden. She seemed to be looking at something other than what she looked as if she was looking at. But when she smiled, as she did now, it was as if she suddenly arrived from somewhere. Warmth and life flooded into her face, an impossibly graceful movement into her body. The effect was very disconcerting, and it disconcerted Arthur like hell. She grinned, tossed her bag into the back and swivelled herself into the front seat. "'Don't worry about the umbrella,' she said to him as she climbed in. ''It was my brother's, and he can't have liked it or he wouldn't have given it to me.'' She laughed and pulled on her seatbelt. ''You're not a friend of my brother's, are you?'' ''No.'' Her voice was the only part of her which didn't say, ''Good.'' Her physical presence there in the car, his car, was quite extraordinary to Arthur. He felt, as he let the car pull slowly away, that he could hardly think or breathe and hoped that neither of these functions were vital to his driving or they were in trouble. So what he had experienced in the other car, her brother's car, the night he had returned exhausted and bewildered from his nightmare years in the stars, had not been the unbalance of the moment, or, if it had been, he was at least twice as unbalanced now, and quite liable to fall off whatever it is that well-balanced people are supposed to be balancing on. So, he said, hoping to kick the conversation off to an exciting start. He was meant to pick me up, my brother, but phoned to say he couldn't make it. I asked about buses, but the man started to look at a calendar rather than a timetable, so I decided to hitch. So, so, so here I am, and what I would like to know is how you know my name. Perhaps we ought to first sort out, said Arthur, looking back over his shoulder as he eased his car into the motorway traffic, where I'm taking you. Very close, he hoped, or a long way. Close would mean she lived near him. A long way would mean he could drive her there. I'd like to go to Taunton, she said, please, if that's all right. It's not far. You can drop me at... You live in Taunton, he said, hoping that he'd managed to sound merely curious rather than ecstatic. Taunton was wonderfully close to him. He could... No, London, she said. There's a train in just under an hour. It was the worst thing possible. Taunton was only minutes away up the motorway. He wondered what to do, and while he was wondering, with horror heard himself saying, ''Oh, I can take you to London. Let me take you to London.'' Bungling idiot. Why on earth had he said ''let'' in that stupid way? He was behaving like a twelve-year-old. She looked at him severely. ''Are you going to London?'' she asked. ''I wasn't,'' he said, ''but uh Bungling idiot. ''It's very kind of you.'' she said. But really, no, I like to go by train. And suddenly she was gone. Or rather, that part of her which brought her to life was gone. She looked rather distantly out of the window and hummed lightly to herself. He couldn't believe it. Thirty seconds into the conversation and already he'd blown it. Grown men, he told himself, in flat contradiction of centuries of accumulated evidence about the way grown men behave, do not behave like this. Taunton, five miles, said the signpost. He gripped the steering wheel so tightly the car wobbled. He was going to have to do something dramatic. Fenny, he said. She glanced round sharply at him. You still haven't told me how... Listen, said Arthur, I will tell you, though the story is rather strange, very strange. She was still looking at him, but said nothing. Listen, you said that, did I? Oh, there are things I must talk to you about and things I must tell you. A story I must tell you which would... He was thrashing about. He wanted something along the lines of thy knotted and combined locks to part and each particular hair to stand on end like quills upon the fretful porpentine but didn't think he could carry it off and didn't like the hedgehog reference. Which would take more than five miles, he settled for in the end. Rather lamely, he was afraid. Well, just supposing, he said, just supposing he didn't know what was coming next, so he thought he'd just sit back and listen, that there was some extraordinary way in which you were very important to me and that, though you didn't know it, I was very important to you. But it all went for nothing because we only had five miles and I was a stupid idiot knowing how to say something very important to someone I've only just met and not crash into lorries at the same time. What would you say? He paused helplessly and looked at her. I should do. Watch the road, she yelped. Shit! He narrowly avoided careering into the side of a hundred Italian washing machines in a German lorry. I think, she said with a momentary sigh of relief, you should buy me a drink before my train goes. Chapter 12 There is, for some reason, something especially grim about pubs near stations a very particular kind of grubbiness, a special kind of pallor to the pork pies. Worse than the pork pies, though, are the sandwiches. There is a feeling which persists in England that making a sandwich interesting, attractive, or in any way pleasant to eat is something sinful that only foreigners do. Make them dry is the instruction buried somewhere in the collective national consciousness. Make them rubbery. If you have to keep the buggers fresh, do it by washing them once a week. It is by eating sandwiches in pubs on Saturday lunchtimes that the British seek to atone for whatever their national sins have been. They're not altogether clear what those sins are and don't want to know either. Sins are not the sort of things one wants to know about. But whatever sins there are, are amply atoned for by the sandwiches they make themselves eat. If there is anything worse than the sandwiches, It is the sausages which sit next to them. Joyless tubes, full of gristle, floating in a sea of something hot and sad, stuck with a plastic pin in the shape of a chef's hat. A memorial, one feels, for some chef who hated the world and died, forgotten and alone, among his cats, on a back stair in Stepney. The sausages are for the ones who know what their sins are and wish to atone for something specific. ''There must be somewhere better,'' said Arthur. ''No time,'' said Fenny, glancing at her watch. ''My train leaves in half an hour.'' They sat at a small, wobbly table. On it were some dirty glasses and some soggy beer mats with jokes printed on them. Arthur got Fenny a tomato juice and himself a pint of yellow water with gas in it and a couple of sausages. He didn't know why. He bought them for something to do while the gas settled in his glass. The barman dunked Arthur's change in a pool of beer on the bar for which Arthur thanked him all right said Fenny glancing at her watch tell me what it is you have to tell me she sounded as well she might extremely sceptical and Arthur's heart sank hardly he felt the most conducive setting to try to explain to her as she sat there suddenly cool and defensive that in a sort of out of body dream He had had a telepathic sense that the mental breakdown she had suffered had been connected with the fact that, appearances to the contrary notwithstanding, the Earth had been demolished to make way for a new hyperspace bypass, something which he alone on Earth knew anything about, having virtually witnessed it from a Vogon spaceship, and that furthermore both his body and soul ached for her unbearably, and he needed to go to bed with her as soon as was humanly possible he started. I wonder if you'd like to buy some tickets for our raffle? It's just a little one. He glanced up sharply. To raise money for Angie, who's retiring? What? And needs a kidney machine. He was being lent over by a rather stiffly slim middle-aged woman with a prim knitted suit and a prim little perm and a prim little smile that probably got licked by prim little dogs a lot. She was holding out a small book of cloakroom tickets and a collecting tin. Only ten pence each, she said, so you could probably even buy two without breaking the bank. She gave a tinkly little laugh and then a curiously long sigh, saying without breaking the bank had obviously given her more pleasure than anything since some G.I.s had been billeted on her in the war. Er, yes, all right, said Arthur, hurriedly digging in his pocket and producing a couple of coins. With infuriating slowness and prim theatricality, as if there was such a thing, the woman tore off two tickets and handed them to Arthur. "'I do hope you win,' she said with a smile that suddenly snapped together like a piece of advanced origami. "'The prizes are so nice!' "'Yes, thank you,' said Arthur, pocketing the tickets rather brusquely and glancing at his watch. He turned towards Fenny. So did the woman with the raffle tickets.' do about you, young lady? she said. It's for Angie's kidney machine. (laughs) She's retiring, you see, yes? She hoisted the little smile even further up her face. She would have to stop and let it go soon, or the skin would surely split. Uh, look, here you are, said Arthur, and pushed a fifty pence piece at her, in the hope that that would see her off. Oh, we are in the money, aren't we? said the woman, with a long smiling sigh. Down from London, are we?" Arthur wished she wouldn't talk so bloody slowly. No, that's all right, really, he said with a wave of his hand, and she started with an awful deliberation to peel off five tickets one by one. Oh, but you must have your tickets, insisted the woman, or you won't be able to claim your prize. They're very nice prizes, you know, very suitable. Arthur snatched the tickets and said thank you as sharply as he could. The woman turned to Fenny once again. And now, what about... No! Arthur nearly yelled. These are for her, he explained, brandishing the five new tickets. Oh, I see. How nice. She smiled sickeningly at both of them. Well, I I do hope you... Yes, snapped Arthur. Thank you. The woman finally departed to the table next to theirs. Arthur turned desperately to Fenny, and was relieved to see that she was rocking with silent laughter. He sighed and smiled. Where were we? You were calling me Fenny, and I was about to ask you not to. What do you mean? She twirled a little wooden cocktail stick in her tomato juice. It's why I asked if you were a friend of my brother's, or half-brother, really. He's the only one who calls me Fenny, and I'm not fond of him for it. So what's... Fenchurch. What? Fenchurch. Fenchurch? She looked at him sternly. Yes, she said, and I'm watching you like a lynx to see if you're going to ask me the same silly question that everyone asks me till I want to scream. I shall be cross and disappointed if you do. Plus, I shall scream. So watch it. She smiled, shook her hair a little forward over her face, and peered at him from behind it. ''Oh,'' he said, ''that's a little unfair, isn't it?'' ''Yes.'' ''Fine.'' ''All right,'' she said with a laugh, ''you can ask me. Might as well get it over with. Better than have you call me Fenny all the time.'' ''Presumably,'' said Arthur, Two tickets left, you see, and since you were so generous when I spoke to you before... What? snapped Arthur. The woman with the perm and the smile and the now nearly empty book of cloakroom tickets was now waving the two last ones under his nose. I thought I'd give the opportunity to you, because the prizes are so nice. She wrinkled up her nose a little confidentially. Very tasteful. I know you'll like them, and it is for Angie's retirement present, you see. We want to give her a kidney machine, yes, said Arthur. Here. He held out two more ten-pence pieces to her and took the tickets. A thought seemed to strike the woman. It struck her very slowly. You could watch it coming in like a long wave on a sandy beach. Oh dear, she said. I'm not interrupting anything, am I? She peered anxiously at both of them. No, no, it's fine, said Arthur. Everything that could possibly be fine, he insisted, is fine. Thank you, he added. I say, she said in a delighted ecstasy of worry, you're not in love, are you? It's very hard to say, said Arthur. We haven't had a chance to talk yet. He glanced at Fenchurch. She was grinning. The woman nodded with knowing confidentiality. I'll let you see the prizes in a minute, she said, and left. Arthur turned, with a sigh, back to the girl that he found it hard to say whether he was in love with. You were about to ask me, she said, a question. Yes, said Arthur. We can do it together if you like, said Fenchurch. Was I found... In a handbag, joined in Arthur... ''In the left luggage office,'' they said together, ''at Fenchurch Street Station,'' they finished. ''And the answer,'' said Fenchurch, ''is no.'' ''Fine,'' said Arthur. ''I was conceived there.'' ''What?'' ''I was con... In the left luggage office?'' hooted Arthur. ''No, of course not. Don't be silly. What would my parents be doing in the left luggage office?'' she said, rather taken aback by the suggestion. I don't know, sputtered Arthur. Or rather, it was in the ticket queue. The, the ticket queue, or so they claim. They refuse to elaborate. They only say you wouldn't believe how bored it is possible to get in the ticket queue at Fenchurch Street Station. She sipped demurely at her tomato juice and looked at her watch. Arthur continued to gurgle chirpily for a moment or two. "'I'm going to have to go in a minute or two,' said Fenchurch. "'And you haven't begun to tell me whatever this terrifically extraordinary thing is "'that you were so keen to get off your chest.' "'Why don't you let me drive you to London?' said Arthur. "'It's Saturday. I've got nothing particular to do. I... "'No,' said Fenchurch. "'Thank you. It's sweet of you, but no. "'I need to be by myself for a couple of days.' "'She smiled and shrugged. "'But you can tell me another time. I'll give you my number.' Arthur's heart went boom, boom, churn, churn as she scribbled seven figures in pencil on a scrap of paper and handed it to him. Now we can relax, she said with a slow smile, which filled Arthur till he thought he would burst. Fenchurch, he said, enjoying the name as he said it. I... a box! said a trailing voice, of cherry brandy liqueurs, and also, and I know you'll like this, a gramophone record of Scottish bagpipe music. Yes, thank you, very nice, insisted Arthur. I just thought I'd let you have a look at them, said the permed woman, as you're down from London. She was holding them out proudly for Arthur to see. He could see that they were indeed a box of cherry brandy liqueurs and a record of bagpipe music. That was what they were. I'll let you have your drink in peace now, she said, patting Arthur lightly on his seething shoulder. But I knew you'd like to see. Arthur re-engaged his eyes with Fenchurch's once again and suddenly was at a loss for something to say. A moment had come and gone between the two of them, but the whole rhythm of it had been wrecked by that stupid, blasted woman. Don't worry, said Fenchurch, looking at him steadily from over the top of her glass. We will talk again. She took a sip. Perhaps, she added, it wouldn't have gone so well if it wasn't for her. She gave a wry smile and dropped her hair forward over her face again. It was perfectly true. He had to admit, it was perfectly true. Chapter 13 That night, at home, as he was prancing around the house pretending to be tripping through cornfields in slow motion and continually exploding with sudden laughter, Arthur thought he could even bear to listen to the album of bagpipe music he had won. It was eight o'clock, and he decided he would make himself, force himself, to listen to the whole record before he phoned her. Maybe he should even leave it till tomorrow. That would be the cool thing to do. Or next week sometime. Nope. No games. He wanted her and didn't care who knew it. He definitely and absolutely wanted her. Adored her. Longed for her. Wanted to do more things than there were names for with her. He actually caught himself saying things like yippee as he pranced ridiculously round the house. Her eyes. Her hair. Her voice. Everything. He stopped. He would put on the record of bagpipe music, then he would call her. Would he perhaps call her first? No, what he would do was this. He would put on the record of bagpipe music, he would listen to it, every last banshee wail of it, then he would call her. That was the correct order, that was what he would do. He was worried about touching things in case they blew up when he did so. He picked up the record it failed to blow up. He slipped it out of its cover. He opened the record player, he turned on the amp. They both survived. He giggled foolishly as he lowered the stylus onto the disc. He sat and listened solemnly to a Scottish soldier. He listened to Amazing Grace. He listened to something about some Glen or other. He thought about his miraculous lunchtime. They had just been on the point of leaving when they were distracted by an awful outbreak of yoo-hooing. The appallingly permed woman was waving to them across the room like some stupid bird with a broken wing. Everyone in the pub turned to them and seemed to be expecting some sort of response. They hadn't listened to the bit about how pleased and happy Angie was going to be about the £4.30 everyone had helped raise towards the cost of her kidney machine, had been vaguely aware that someone from the next table had won a box of cherry brandy liqueurs, and took a moment or two to cotton on to the fact that the yoo-hooing lady was trying to ask them if they had ticket number 37. Arthur discovered that he had. He glanced angrily at his watch. Fenchurch gave him a push. Go on, she said. Go and get it. Don't be bad-tempered. Give them a nice speech about how pleased you are and you can give me a call and tell me how it went. I'll want to hear the record. Go on." She flicked his arm and left. The regulars thought his acceptance speech a little over-effusive. It was, after all, merely an album of bagpipe music. Arthur thought about it and listened to the music and kept on breaking into laughter. Chapter Fourteen. Ring, ring. Ring, ring. Ring, ring. Hello, yes. Yeah, that's right. Yes. Y- you'll have to speak up. There's an awful lot of noise near. What? No. I only do the bar in the evenings. Zivani does lunch and Jim. He's a landlord. No, no, I wasn't on. What? You'll have to speak up. What? no don't know anything about no raffle what no don't know nothing about it hold on i'll call jim the barmaid put her hand over the receiver and called over the noisy bar Here, jim bloke on the phone uh, says something about he's won a raffle keeps on saying his ticket 37 and he's won no there was a guy in the pub here won. shouted back the barman he says have we got the ticket well how can he think he's won if he hasn't even got a ticket Jim says, how can you think you've won if you haven't even got the ticket? What? She put her hand over the receiver again. Jim, he keeps effing and blinding at me, he says there's a number on the ticket. Of Course there was a number on the ticket, it was a bloody raffle ticket, wasn't it? He says he means it's a telephone number on the ticket. Put the phone down and serve the bloody customers, will you? Chapter 15 Eight hours west sat a man alone on a beach, mourning an inexplicable loss. He could only think of his loss in little packets of grief at a time, because the whole thing was too great to be borne. He watched the long, slow Pacific waves come in along the sand, and waited and waited for the nothing that he knew was about to happen. As the time came for it not to happen, it duly didn't happen, And so the afternoon wore itself away, and the sun dropped beneath the long line of the sea, and the day was gone. The beach was a beach we shall not name, because his private house was there, but it was a small sandy stretch somewhere along the hundreds of miles of coastline that first runs west from Los Angeles, which is described in the new edition of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy in one entry as junky, wonky, lunky, stunky, and what's that other word? and all kinds of bad stuff woo. And in another, written only hours later, as being like several thousand square miles of American Express junk mail, but without the same sense of moral depth. Plus the air is, for some reason, yellow. The coastline runs west, and then turns north up to the misty bay of San Francisco, which the guide describes as a good place to go. It's very easy to believe that everyone you meet there also is a space traveller. Starting a new religion for you is just their way of saying hi. Until you've settled in and got the hang of the place, it is best to say no to three questions out of any given four that anyone may ask you, because there are some very strange things going on there, some of which an unsuspecting alien could die of. The hundreds of curling miles of cliffs and sand, palm trees, breakers and sunsets are described in the guide as boffo, a good one. And somewhere on this good boffo stretch of coastline lay the house of this inconsolable man, a man whom many regarded as being insane, but this was only as he would tell people because he was. One of the many, many reasons why people thought him insane was because of the peculiarity of his house, which, even in a land where most people's houses were peculiar in one way or another, was quite extreme in its peculiarness. His house was called the Outside of the Asylum. His name was simply John Watson, though he preferred to be called, and some of his friends had now reluctantly agreed to do this, Wonko the Sane. In his house were a number of strange things, including a grey glass bowl with eight words engraved upon it. We can talk of him much later on. This is just an interlude to watch the sun go down and to say that he was there watching it. He had lost everything he cared for and was now simply waiting for the end of the world, little realising that it had already been and gone. Chapter 16 After a disgusting Sunday spent emptying rubbish bins behind a pub in Taunton and finding nothing, no raffle ticket, no telephone number, Arthur tried everything he could to find Fenchurch. And the more things he tried, the more weeks passed. He raged and railed against himself, against fate, against the world and its weather. He even, in his sorrow and his fury, went and sat in the motorway service station cafeteria where he'd been just before he met her. It's the drizzle that makes me particularly morose. Please shut up about the drizzle, snapped Arthur. I would shut up if it would shut up drizzling. Look, but I'll tell you what it will do when it shuts up drizzling, shall I? No. Blatter. What? It will blatter. Arthur stared over the rim of his coffee cup at the grisly outside world. It was a completely pointless place to be, he realised, and he had been driven there by superstition rather than logic. However, as if to bait him with the knowledge that such coincidences could in fact happen, fate had chosen to reunite him with the lorry driver he had encountered there last time. The more he tried to ignore him, the more he found himself being dragged back into the gravitic whirlpool of the man's exasperating conversation. I think, said Arthur vaguely, cursing himself for even bothering to say this, that it's easing off. Ha! Arthur just shrugged. He should go. That's what he should do. He should just go. It never stops raining, ranted the lorry driver. He thumped the table, spilt his tea, and actually for a moment appeared to be steaming. You can't just walk off without responding to a remark like that. Of course it stops raining, said Arthur. It was hardly an elegant refutation, but it had to be said. It rains all the time, raved the man, thumping the table again, in time to the words. Arthur shook his head. Stupid to say it rains all the time, he said. The man's eyebrows shot up, affronted. Stupid? Why is it stupid? Why is it stupid to say it rains all the time, if it rains the whole time? Didn't rain yesterday did in Darlington. Arthur paused warily. You going to ask me where I was yesterday? asked the man. Eh? No, said Arthur. But I expect you can guess. Do you? Begins with a D. Does it? And it was pissing down there, I can tell you. Oh, you don't want to sit down, mate, said a passing stranger in overalls to Arthur cheerily. <laughs> That's Thundercloud Corner, that is. Reserved special for old raindrops keep falling on me head here. <laughs> There's one reserved in every motorway calf between here and sunny Denmark. Steer clear is my advice. <laughs> it's what we all do. How's it going, Rob? Keep him busy. Got your wet weather tyres on. <laughs> he breezed by and went to tell a joke about Brit Eklund to someone at a nearby table. See? "'None of them bastards take me seriously,' said Rob McKenna. "'But,' he added darkly, leaning forward and screwing up his eyes, "'they all know it's true.' Arthur frowned. "'Like my wife,' hissed the sole owner and driver of McKenna's all-weather haulage. "'She says it's nonsense, and I make a fuss and complain about nothing. "'But!' he paused dramatically, and darted out dangerous looks from his eyes. She always brings the washing in when I phone to say I'm on my way home. He brandished his coffee spoon. What do you make of that? Well, I have a book, he went on. I have a book, a diary. Kept it for 15 years. Shows every single place I've ever been, every day. And also what the weather was like. And it was uniformly, he snarled, Horrible. All over England, Scotland, Wales I've been, all round the continent, Italy, Germany, back and forth to Denmark, been to Yugoslavia, it's all marked in and charted. Even when I went to visit my brother, he added, in Seattle. Well, said Arthur, getting up to leave at last, perhaps you'd better show it to someone. I will, said Rob McKenna. And he did. Chapter 17. Misery. Dejection. More misery and more dejection. He needed a project and he gave himself one. He would find where his cave had been. On prehistoric earth, he had lived in a cave. Not a nice cave, a lousy cave, but there was no but. It had been a totally lousy cave and he had hated it. But he had lived in it for five years, which made it home of some kind, and a person likes to keep track of his homes. Arthur Dent was such a person, and so he went to Exeter to buy a computer. That was what he really wanted, of course, a computer, but he felt he ought to have some serious purpose in mind before he simply went and lashed out a lot of readies on what people might otherwise mistake as being just a thing to play with. So that was his serious purpose, to pinpoint the exact location of a cave on prehistoric earth. He explained this to the man in the shop. Uh, why? said the man in the shop. This was a tricky one. OK, skip that, said the man in the shop. How? Well, I was hoping you could help me with that. The man sighed and his shoulders dropped. Have you much experience of computers? Arthur wondered whether to mention Eddie, the shipboard computer on the Heart of Gold, who could have done the job in a second, or deep thought, or... But decided he wouldn't. No, he said. Looks like a fun afternoon, said the man in the shop. But he said it only to himself. Arthur bought the Apple anyway. Over a few days he also acquired some astronomical software plotted the movements of stars, drew rough little diagrams of how he seemed to remember the stars to have been in the sky when he looked up out of his cave at night, and worked away busily at it for weeks, cheerfully putting off the conclusion he knew he would inevitably have to come to, which was that the whole project was completely ludicrous. Rough drawings from memory were futile. He didn't even know how long it had been, beyond Ford Prefect's rough guess at the time that it was a couple of million years, and he simply didn't have the maths. Still, in the end he worked out a method which would at least produce a result. He decided not to mind the fact that with the extraordinary jumble of rules of thumb, wild approximations and arcane guesswork he was using, he would be lucky to hit the right galaxy. He just went ahead and got a result. He would call it the right result. Who would know? As it happened, through the myriad and unfathomable chances of fate, he got it exactly right, though he, of course, would never know that. He just went up to London and knocked on the appropriate door. Oh, I thought you were going to phone me first. Arthur gaped in astonishment. You can only come in for a few minutes, said Fenchurch. I'm just going out. Chapter 18 A summer's day in Islington, full of the mournful wail of antique-restoring machinery. Fenchurch was unavoidably busy for the afternoon, so Arthur wandered in a blissed-out haze and looked at all the shops which, in Islington, are quite a useful bunch as anyone who regularly needs old woodworking tools, burr-war helmets, drag, office furniture or fish will readily confirm. The sun beat down over the roof gardens. It beat on architects and plumbers. It beat on barristers and burglars. It beat on pizzas. It beat on estate agents' particulars. It beat on Arthur as he went into a restored furniture shop. ''It's an interesting building,'' said the proprietor cheerfully. ''There's a cellar with a secret passage which connects with a nearby pub. It was built for the Prince Regent, apparently, so he could make his escape when he needed to." You mean, in case anybody might catch him buying stripped pine furniture?" said Arthur. No, said the proprietor. Not for that reason. You'll have to excuse me, said Arthur. I'm terribly happy. I see. He wandered hazily on and found himself outside the offices of Greenpeace. He remembered the contents of his file marked Things To Do Urgent, which he hadn't opened again in the meantime. He marched in with a cheery smile and said he'd come to give them some money to help free the Dolphins. Very funny, they told him. Go away. This wasn't quite the response he had expected, so he tried again. This time they got quite angry with him, so he just left some money anyway and went back out into the sunshine. Just after six, he returned to Fenchurch's house in the alleyway, clutching a bottle of champagne. Hold this, she said shoved a stout rope in his hand and disappeared inside through the large white wooden doors from which dangled a fat padlock off a black iron bar. The house was a small converted stable in a light industrial alleyway behind the derelict Royal Agriculture Hall of Islington. As well as its large stable doors, it also had a normal looking front door of smartly glazed panelled wood with a black dolphin door knocker. The one odd thing about this door was its doorstep which was nine feet high, since the door was set into the upper of the two floors and presumably had been originally used to haul in hay for hungry horses. An old pulley jutted out of the brickwork above the doorway, and it was over this that the rope Arthur was holding was slung. The other end of the rope held a suspended cello. The door opened above his head. OK, said Fenchurch, pull on the rope, steady the cello, pass it up to me. He pulled on the rope. He steadied the cello. I can't pull on the rope again, he said, without letting go of the cello. Fenchurch leant down. I'm steadying the cello, she said. You pull on the rope. The cello eased up level with the doorway, swinging slightly, and Fenchurch manoeuvred it inside. Come on up yourself, she called down. Arthur picked up his bag of goodies and went in through the stable doors, tingling. The bottom room, which he had seen briefly before, was pretty rough and full of junk. A large old cast-iron mangle stood there. A surprising number of kitchen sinks were piled in a corner. There was also, Arthur was momentarily alarmed to see, a pram, but it was very old and uncomplicatedly full of books. The floor was old stained concrete, excitingly cracked. And this was the measure of Arthur's mood as he started up the rickety wooden steps in the far corner. Even a cracked concrete floor seemed to him an almost unbearably sensual thing. An architect friend of mine keeps on telling me how he can do wonderful things with this place, said Fenchurch chatterily, as Arthur emerged through the floor. He keeps on coming round, standing in stunned amazement, muttering about space and objects and events and marvellous qualities of light then says he needs a pencil and disappears for weeks. Wonderful things have, therefore, so far failed to happen to it. In fact, thought Arthur as he looked about, the upper room was at least reasonably wonderful anyway. It was simply decorated, furnished with things made out of cushions, and also a stereo set with speakers which would have impressed the guys who put up Stonehenge. There were flowers which were pale, and pictures which were interesting. There was a sort of gallery structure in the roof space which held a bed and also a bathroom, which, Fenchurch explained, you could actually swing a cat in. But, she added, only if it was a reasonably patient cat and didn't mind a few nasty cracks about the head. So, here you are. Yes. They looked at each other for a moment. The moment became a longer moment, and suddenly it was a very long moment, so long one could hardly tell where all the time was coming from. For Arthur, who could usually contrive to feel self-conscious if left alone for long enough with a Swiss cheese plant, the moment was one of sustained revelation. He felt, on the sudden, like a cramped and zoo-born animal who awakes one morning to find the door to his cage hanging quietly open and the savannah stretching grey and pink to the distant rising sun while all around new sounds awaking. He wondered what the new sounds were as he gazed at her openly wondering face and her eyes that smiled with a shared surprise. He hadn't realised that life speaks with a voice to you, a voice that brings you answers to the questions you continually ask of it, had never consciously detected it or recognised its tones till it now said something it had never said to him before which was, yes. Fenchurch dropped her eyes away at last, with a tiny shake of her head. "'I know,' she said. "'I shall have to remember,' she added, "'that you are the sort of person who cannot hold on to a simple piece of paper "'for two minutes without winning a raffle with it.' She turned away. "'Let's go for a walk,' she said quickly. "'Hyde Park. I'll change into something less suitable.' She was dressed in a rather severe, dark dress, not a particularly shapely one, and it didn't really suit her. I wear it specially for my cello teacher, she said. He's a nice old boy, but I sometimes think all that bowing gets him a bit excited. I'll be down in a moment. She ran lightly up the steps to the gallery above and called down, Put the bottle in the fridge for later. He noticed as he slipped the champagne bottle into the door that it had an identical twin to sit next to. He walked over to the window and looked out. He turned and started to look at her records. From above, he heard the rustle of her dress fall to the ground. He talked to himself about the sort of person he was. He told himself very firmly that for this moment at least he would keep his eyes very firmly and steadfastly locked onto the spines of her records, read the titles, nod appreciatively, count the blasted things if he had to. He would keep his head down. This he completely, utterly and abjectly failed to do. She was staring down at him with such intensity that she seemed hardly to notice that he was looking up at her. Then suddenly she shook her head, dropped the light sundress down over herself and disappeared quickly into the bathroom. She emerged a moment later, all smiles and with a sun hat, and came tripping down the steps with extraordinary lightness. It was a strange kind of dancing motion she had. She saw that he noticed it and put her head slightly on one side. "'Like it?' she said. "'You look gorgeous,' he said simply, because she did. Hmm, she said, as if he hadn't really answered her question. "'She closed the upstairs front door, which had stood open all this time, "'and looked around the little room to see that it was all in a fit state "'to be left on its own for a while. "'Arthur's eyes followed hers around, "'and while he was looking in the other direction, "'she slipped something out of a drawer and into the canvas bag she was carrying.' Arthur looked back at her. Ready? Did you know, she said with a slightly puzzled smile, that there's something wrong with me? Her directness caught Arthur unprepared. Well, he said, I'd heard some vague sort of... I wonder how much you do know about me, she said. If you heard from where I think you heard, then that's not it. Russell just sort of makes stuff up because he can't deal with what it really is. A pang of worry went through Arthur. Then what is it? he said. Can you tell me? Don't worry, she said. It's nothing bad at all. Just unusual. Very, very unusual. She touched his hand and then leant forward and kissed him briefly. I shall be very interested to know, she said, if you manage to work out what it is this evening. Arthur felt that if someone tapped him at that point he would have chimed, like the deep-sustained rolling chime his grey fishbowl made when he flicked it with his thumbnail. Chapter 19 Ford Prefect was irritated to be continually wakened by the sound of gunfire. He slid himself out of the maintenance hatchway which he had fashioned into a bunk for himself by disabling some of the noisier machinery in its vicinity and padding it with towels. He slung himself down the access ladder and prowled the corridors moodily. They were claustrophobic and ill-lit, and what light there was was continually flickering and dimming as power surged this way and that through the ship, causing heavy vibrations and rasping humming noises. That wasn't it, though. He paused and leaned back against the wall as something that looked like a small silver power drill flew past him down the dim corridor with a nasty, searing screech. That wasn't it, either. He clambered listlessly through a bulkhead door and found himself in a larger corridor, though still ill-lit. The ship lurched. It had been doing this a fair bit, but this was heavier. A small platoon of robots went by, making a terrible clattering. Still not it, though. Acrid smoke was drifting up from one end of the corridor, so he walked along it in the other direction. He passed a series of observation monitors let into the walls behind plates of toughened, but still badly scratched perspex. One of them showed some horrible green scaly reptilian figure, ranting and raving about the single transferable vote system. It was hard to tell whether he was for or against it, but he clearly felt very strongly about it. Ford turned the sound down. That wasn't it, though. He passed another monitor. It was showing a commercial for some brand of toothpaste that would apparently make you feel free if you used it. There was nasty blaring music with it, too. But that wasn't it. He came upon another, much larger, three dimensional screen that was monitoring the outside of the vast, silver, Zaxisian ship. As he watched, a thousand horribly beweaponed Zersla robot star cruisers came searing round the dark shadow of a moon, silhouetted against the blinding disk of the star Zaxis, and the ship simultaneously unleashed a vicious blaze of hideously incomprehensible forces from all its orifices against them. That was it. Ford shook his head irritably and rubbed his eyes. He slumped on the wrecked body of a dull silver robot, which clearly had been burning earlier on, but had now cooled down enough to sit on. He yawned and dug his copy of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy out of his satchel. He activated the screen and flicked idly through some Level 3 entries and some Level 4 entries. He was looking for some good insomnia cures. He found rest which was what he reckoned he needed. He found rest and recuperation, and was about to pass on when he suddenly had a better idea. He looked up at the monitor screen. The battle was raging more fiercely every second, and the noise was appalling. The ship juddered, screamed, and lurched as each new bolt of stunning energy was delivered or received. He looked back down at the guide again, and flipped through a few likely locations. He suddenly laughed and then rummaged in his satchel again. He pulled out a small memory dump module, wiped off the fluff and biscuit crumbs, and plugged it into an interface on the back of the guide. When all the information that he could think was relevant had been dumped into the module, he unplugged it again, tossed it lightly in the palm of his hand, put the guide away in his satchel, smirked, and went in search of the ship's computer databanks.